0: Well, if you think about Israel's history, there are significant changes that take place. So, when they were delivered out of the land of Egypt and they came out to Mount Sinai, they encountered the Amalekites and they had to fight, and they were not a fighting company of people. But in time, they became a host, an army and they were expert in warfare, and they went into the land, and they conquered, by God's help, the land through the book of Jud, excuse me, through the book of Joshua, and into the book of Judges, and then we come to the period of the kings, when uh, the king had for himself an army of the people, the fighting men, And they were still working at suppressing all their enemies in the promised land that God had given them. Their history in the kingship lasted, we'll just roughly give it, from 1000 B.C. to 586 B.C. And then by that time, both the north and the south countries were taken into captivity. And Israel never had an army again because they became captive to Babylon and Babylon watched over them. And when Babylon turned on them, then Persia subdued Babylon and Persia watched over them. And when Persia turned on them, Greece subdued Persia and Greece watched over them. And so you come down to the Roman Empire who were watching over them That is, the Israelites, particularly when you read through the book of Acts. And then they turned on them near the 65, 66 AD, when we go into the period of war. They never had an army during that whole time. They had to rely on the Lord. And when Jesus came in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, The seed that would live forever, he stood before Caiaphas, excuse me, Pilate, and he said, My kingdom is not of this world. He, of course, did not mean by that the kingdom is in heaven. No, he came to bring the kingdom to earth. And he was enthroned, and the kingdom came. What he meant was, If my kingdom were the kind of your kingdom on earth, sourced in earthliness, my men would fight. But my kingdom's not that kind of kingdom. My kingdom, well, Jesus told it. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to be the servant of everybody. If you want to be a leader, you've got to become the least. You know how Gentiles work, he says. They lord it over them. And they love to be called benefactors. They subjugate their people. And they use a heavy hand. Not so in my kingdom. Of course, there have been problems with the church down through the ages in God's kingdom. And the church has become violent. But that's not Christ's way. That problem resides with Christ. No. Paul puts it this way. For though we are walking in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't walk according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Not guns and swords and cannons and atom bombs and hydrogen bombs but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The word fortresses is not talking about buildings. It's talking about the way people think. We are are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God And we are taking every thought captive. That's our warfare. The church gets sidetracked a little, though. And sometimes we forget about that, and we think, you know, the way we're going to win is by power. And ever since the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, the church has been so given to power. We think we're going to, save this country by getting a majority in the Congress and taking uh, the Supreme Court and legislating. Okay, this is the way you're gonna live. But of course that doesn't work. We have the laws, people don't obey them because people have to have changed minds, changed hearts. And we've seen what happened in the last four years now It's gone amok. Who knows if the Republican Party will even uh, make it through this. Of course, we're not suggesting the Democrat Party is wonderful. It's not. But that's not where our hope lies. It doesn't lie with Democrats, and it doesn't lie with Republicans. It lies just as it says in Hebrews. And let us hold fast the confession, which is our hope. Hold it fast, without wavering. Don't turn to the right or don't turn to the left. But see, he who promised is faithful. No, no, you gotta look at the times and you gotta think about it. You gotta say, wait a minute, Jesus is king over this kingdom. And it covers all the earth. (laughs) The earth doesn't know it right now. We're supposed to announce it. He's king. And yet, sometimes it doesn't look like it to us. But he knows what he's doing. And right now, he is humbling the church. Because the church has been in in disarray. I just uh, was listening to something the other day and uh, a book was mentioned. Here's the title of the book, I'm reading it. The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self is the title. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to the Sexual Revolution. The point of the book, and it is a Christian author, is hey, what you see going on today, didn't start in 1960. 1960, who added to it, facilitated it. But it started way back in the 18th century and even beyond that. We've been moving this way in the West and here's where we are. Guns won't change it. Power in Washington D.C. won't change it. There's no undoing it except by one means. And that's by changing hearts. Now you may think, well, look, everything's so terrible. How in the world can that happen? And Paul says to the Corinthians, look, among you were homosexuals and effeminate and adulterers and idolaters, and swindlers, and revilers, but you were justified. Excuse me. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. That's God's work. If you went to the city of Corinth, it was an awful place, a place of great prostitution which plagued the church but they were changed how not by a change of government not by a political party because it remained as wicked as it always was they were changed by god's grace and god's word and the church has to come back to that and this is centered and focused In the book of 1 Chronicles, if you think about Chronicles, remember we went through nine chapters of genealogy and then the 10th chapter was about Saul's ma'al, his trespass, his terrible sin, and he lost his life at his own hand. And then came the rise of David. And when you start from chapter 11 and you just push your way through the end of First Chronicles, there's one focus. David conquers Jerusalem. David brings the tent to Jerusalem. David puts the ark in the tent in Jerusalem, actually Zion. And he worships there. And he starts the organized praise music of Israel, that didn't exist before. You have it in your hands when you look at the book of Psalms. Still remains, unknown to most of us, the church's hymn book. Instead, we like to sing other hymns. Psalms are hard, hard to find music we can do. But it's the church's hymn book. It is the only, listen to me, the only inspired hymn book. Every other hymn book is not inspired. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying they're not inspired. This is God's own music, God's own uh, praise for us to sing to himself. That's what David started. And then he built himself a house, and he was at rest in his house, and then he thought, you know, this isn't good. I live in a house of cedar, and God lives in a tent. I'm gonna build him a house. And he wanted to build that house. And God said, no, you're a man of war. You're not going to build the house. And then comes the Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And then the very next three chapters are all about war, David's wars. And then chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles is about David's numbering the troops. And the great trouble that came to israel because of david's sin and then you push into chapter 22 and it's all about getting all the materials and organizing all the people to work at the temple the book of first chronicles in david's life is all about the temple he doesn't build it he gets the drawings for it he gets the materials for it, he organizes the music for it, he structures things, that's what David is up to. And that all flows from God's plan for David's life. Take your Bibles in turn, believe it or not, to 2 Samuel. I want us to look at 2 Samuel. Of course, 2 Samuel and uh, 1 Chronicles 17 are very similar. They're worded just a little differently, two different writers. And uh, the things I want to say today are e- they're, they're in 1 Chronicles 17, they're easier to see in this organized fashion in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8, look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Okay, so verses 8 through 16, God is talking through the prophet Nathan, and God is directly through him addressing David. It comes in two sections. One section is what will happen in David's lifetime. The second section is what will happen after David dies. Three things will happen in his life thing. Four things will happen after he dies. So he calls him my servant, which is a great title. It's used sparingly in the Old Testament. It is the call of the New Testament. We're called to be servants. Not to be masters, not to be lords, but to be servants of Christ. He's talking to his servant, and he says, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that, y- that you should... Did I not give the right passage? 2 no, S- Samuel chapter 7. Sorry, <laughs> I hear the pages turning. And verse 8. <clears throat> I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And here it is, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Promise one in your lifetime, I'm gonna give you a great name. This great name is fulfilled, you see it stated in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. David got a great name for himself. How did he do it? Well, in Chronicles and in Samuel, covering the same material but done differently, in both Chronicles and Samuel, his great name comes from the warfare. He captures all the territory that is promised to Israel, Cis Jordan and Trans Jordan. He captures it all. God says, I'm going to give you a great name. Verse 10 I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them like trees that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked and nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly even from the days that I commanded judges to be over them uh, over the people Israel so uh, if you read the book of judges Joshua and Judges, and you see those books where Judges rule the people, there's nothing but trouble. They're fighting and fighting and fighting. So the promise is, in your lifetime, I'm going to plant my people, and they're going to have their own place, and they're not going to be disturbed. All that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 is going to be fulfilled under David. He's going to take all the land, and then notice, and... I will give you rest from all your enemies. I'm gonna give you a great name, I'm gonna plant a nation so they're not disturbed anymore, and I'm gonna give you rest. You read 1 Kings chapter five and verse four, Solomon says, from my father David I have gotten rest and no disturbance, Solomon's reign was a reign of rest. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, as we'll see a couple of weeks down the road, David says to the nation of men, help my Solomon build the temple. I have subdued all my enemies and I have gotten rest. All this is promised. Israel took their land. It doesn't mean every enemy was out of it. But they were all subdued, and there was rest and no disturbance. That's the promise. I will give you rest. So then he goes on in the second half of verse 11. He's going to talk again. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you, that Yahweh will make, uh, make you a house for, will make a house for you, which is not talking about a physical house, but talking about a people house, which we would call a dynasty. In other words, from David, David's gonna have a son, and David's son is gonna have a son, and David's son's son's gonna have a son, and on all the way down, he's going to make a house for him, and he goes on, he says, and when your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, your descended, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. And then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So there are four promises, one, You're going to have an eternal seed. Now David didn't know exactly how that was going to work out. You see, the way it worked out is each king gets married and waits to have a son. And if you go down the trail and somebody doesn't have a son, you got trouble. But it didn't happen. Athaliah tried to make it happen. She killed all the king's sons, but she missed one, Joash, who was six years old. And they guarded him and protected him. And I believe he became king at eight. And she was killed. And then the line continued and continued and continued. And when you read the book of Kings, particularly, you'll discover that God worked in a certain way so that the lamp of David would not go out each son grandson, -grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson, was a light to Israel, a light of God's promise. And, of course, Satan wants to extinguish that light. The light did not go out, except when God smushed it out in a certain fashion, because Israel, Judah, became more and more wicked And Jehoiakim had a son named Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin was called Jeconiah and Coniah. Jehoiakim was destroyed after nine years of reigning. And Jeremiah says that his burial would be the burial of an ass outside the city. So it happened to him. And then his son became king, Jehoiakim. Chin At 18 years old, and he reigned for three months. And he was so wicked that God took him out of the land with his mother and thrust him down into Babylon. And there he sat. And he said, "This man, write this man down childless, for he shall never prosper or his seed sitting on the throne of God." Well, the funny thing is, Jeconiah did have a son named Shiltia, Shiltia had a son named Zerubbabel, and you can read about it right in Matthew, goes right on down the trail, until you come down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. In other words, Jeconiah's descendant did not sit on the throne, Jesus, was not a descendant of Joseph, not a descendant of Jeconiah, but he was from the Davidic line through Mary, and he did have the legal title to the throne, and he was made the Messiah, the king. So from David all the way down to Joseph, then a little glitch, and what happens? Jesus comes along, and the seed lives forever. Secondly, your throne will be an eternal throne. Well, each king had a son. Each king died and the son became king. So the throne's going on and on and on and on until the Babylonian captivity. And from 586 BC until AD 30, there was no king over Israel. Oh, there are those who claim to be king, but not a Davidic king, no king over Israel. And Jesus became the king of Israel. And he became the king of Israel right on the cross, where a thorn of a crown of thorns was crushed on his head and this titular was put over his head that says, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And there he was enthroned. And of course, when he ascended into heaven, God said to him, today you are my son. Today I've begotten you, you're my son. And we know that term son there is not talking about Jesus as the second person of the triune God who is eternal God forever and ever. It's talking about son in the sense of a king's son because David had a son, David's son Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam had a son, Abijah, and on you go, all the way down. And so Jesus, Became that son. Today I've begotten you. You are the Davidic son. So God's promise went on. And so Christ ascended on high. And there he sits right now at the right hand of his father. Seated on his throne. And what? Hold fast the confession. Which is our hope. Jesus is reigning And Paul tells us he will reign until he subdues every enemy. And the last enemy, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to be subdued is death. And when death is subdued, what will happen? The great resurrection from the dead. And there will be a whole company of people all around this globe some who were raised from the dead, some who will be transformed at that point in time because they're still alive on the earth, and all of God's enemies will be gone, and this globe will be one happy, righteous kingdom forever. Jesus reigns. Third promise is, I'm taking them out of order. Your kingdom is a forever kingdom. Now, the kingdom that God is talking about with David is the kingdom that starts with David, but is realized in Christ. So, of course, David's kingdom was interrupted during the Babylonian captivity. There was no kingdom. It was not the same through Persia and Greece and Rome. But when Christ came, he said, the kingdom has come among you. The kingdom is here. In the Lord's prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But you see, we think, we think, ahead of us, thy kingdom come. But this was, the disciples were taught to pray, thy kingdom come. It did come. Where? At the cross. That's where it started. This kingdom. And this kingdom is still going. And like I said, Christ reigns over the whole earth. Nothing happens on this earth apart from his, how shall we put it, agreement. Whatever he wants, he will make it happen. If he wants people to fall under the sword on this earth because of their sin, it will happen. If he wants to show grace to people on this earth, that's what happens. But he will reign on his throne over this kingdom that is a forever kingdom, and that kingdom will just grow and grow and grow and grow until the enemy, number one, death is defeated, and then the kingdom will come to consummation. That's the promise. David, you're gonna have an eternal seed. Did David know that he would have a son that was at the same time God and man? I don't know. But Jesus is eternal. As one of us, he's a man. And he reigns on an eternal kingdom. Sit at my right hand. God says to him, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there he sits. An eternal seed, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. And then finally, God says to David, your seed, I'll be a father to them and they'll be a son to me. So when when Solomon became king, he became God's son adopted son. And when Solomon died and Rehoboam became king, Rehoboam became God's son, adopted son. Of course, the son of God is eternal. And he is the creator of everything. He's existed forever and he will never cease. But when he came into the world as a human being, He came as one susceptible to death. He could die. He came in a human body. And on that day, this human being died. And what happened? There was a contest between God and Satan. And Satan thought, I'm going to get the better of God. And the Messiah, the lamp, went out. He died. But what satan didn't understand was resurrection he rose from the dead so jesus is that eternal son who who lives an eternal life after dying he rises and he lives for, forever as a human being now the fourth promise includes this little statement in samuel it is not included in 1 chronicles that when he commits iniquity he's going to receive the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. In other words, he's going to be disciplined. And so when you think through Israel's histories and the kings went astray, what happened? They got disciplined. Just like we're going to see in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, when David sinned by numbering the troops, he was disciplined. Oh, not by the strokes of the sons of men though, because God gave him a choice. And he chose to be disciplined by God rather than men because God is gracious. But when we think about Jesus, we say, well, now that, that statement cannot apply to him. If he commits iniquity, Jesus never sinned. We all agree with that, right? Jesus never did sin. But you see, there's a little twist to it because he who knew no sin was made Sin for us. Ah, the one who doesn't know anything about sin is called a sinner. And he bears my sin and your sin. I should say he bore my sin and your sin in the body, in his body on the tree. It does apply to him. has a little twist. He was chastised by the rod of men and by the strokes of the sons of men. You see, who put him to death? Well, the Romans did and the Jews did. The the Roman nation and the Jewish nation, both put him to death. And in Acts chapter 4, this is exactly what the believers pray when they come back having been told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They they go to Psalm 2 and they say, Lord, this is what you said. Why do the nations roar, rage, and why are the peoples in an uproar? Your kings took a stand against your anointed one. For in this place, both Herod and Herod, and Pontius Pilate stood against Christ. What'd they do? They put him to death. He was disciplined by the sons of men, by mankind, for you and me. Now, that's not the only way he was disciplined. Obviously, God's wrath was poured out upon him for our sin, but notice how the promise then holds true when he commits iniquity. Well, Jesus didn't commit iniquity, but our iniquity was transferred to him, and so, He was punished. Now, that's the magnificent thing about the Davidic covenant, isn't it? It finds fulfillment in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see all of these promises, well, they're true. And Scripture wants us to believe it And scripture wants us to find our hope here in the promises of the Davidic covenant. We have a king who lives forever. He has the power of life, and he gives it to us. And that life includes resurrection life. President Biden doesn't have that kind of power. He can't help us there. President Trump doesn't have that kind of power. He can't help us there. But our king is an eternal king, and he has that kind of power, and it was proved when he rose from the grave. That's the first promise. The second promise we're called to believe is that he has an eternal throne and that means our allegiance is altogether to Jesus Christ, not to some party, Republican or Democratic, or some other party or some other man. Our allegiance is to the one who sits on the throne. We can't see him right now, but we know this is true. We know it by faith. Sometimes we forget. And we get all worried and upset like oh my goodness what's going to happen to the united states well you can see what's happening and who's in charge of that donald trump no the coming president no jesus christ is in charge of that so let us hold fast the confession We think of confessions today like the Westminster Confession or the Helvetic Confession, this long statement of what truth is. Those are confessions, and your Bible is a confession. It holds all the truth, and your Bible has all the truth in it. This is the confession we hold to, and this is where our hope lies. It lies with one who sits on a throne. He has all power. So he tells his disciples, Don't be troubled. In the world you have tribulation. Don't worry. I've overcome the world. Jesus is seated on a throne. He's overcome the world. So that's where our hope must rest. We need to be Christians that are, oh, what does it say? Be anxious for nothing. Cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. And Hebrews tells us, Let us draw near to the throne of grace, this eternal throne that Jesus sits on forever and says, come and bring your cares there. You got tribulation in the world? Don't worry, I conquered. Now, are things bad in the United States? Yes. Are things bad in the church? Well, they're not what they should be. Does that mean we're going to sink and die? I I don't think so. You see, we act like, well, oh my goodness, look what's happened. We have this whole sexual revolution with gender identity, and all that stuff, and and it's not as bad as it's going to get yet. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Wait till the first person self-identifies as a dog. And then the next thing you know, since he's a dog or she's a dog, they'll marry a dog. And somebody will come walking up to you and say, meet my wife, or meet my husband, and it's a dog. Isn't that where we're headed? Yeah, that's where we're headed. That's why there's warnings in the Bible about bestiality. Because man, given to himself, is that stupid but what such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified you know what God changes hearts the one who sits on the throne changes hearts and people actually do change when the heart changes their thinking changes when the heart changes their behavior changes And God will do it. It's the promise. Because the kingdom is going to be a forever kingdom. This is what's going to happen. So, a son who's eternal. That's eternal king. A throne that's eternal. Nothing's going to defeat it. A kingdom that will never be wiped out. It started And it will come to fruition. And all because there was a king named Jesus who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because by his wounds we were healed. So how should we live? There's a whole messy world out there, and we're ambassadors of the king. And this messy world stands flatly opposed to us. They're against us all the way. And in the next four years or beyond, our religious liberties are going to be tried to be pushed aside more and more. And one day, it may be illegal to have a Bible or to talk in the name of Jesus. What will you do? Will you shut your mouth? No, we have a king. And the king says, no, you serve me. So right now, you know, homosexuals aren't the bad guys, or I should put it another way, they're not the only bad guys, liars and adulterers, and swindlers, and every kind of sin. That's the bad guy. But we hold the key. And the key is we have a king who sits on the throne, and we can take his word to people who don't know a thing about him, and he can transform them. That's part of the confession. Hold fast the confession which is our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let's stand. Father, we want to thank you for your love for your Son, Jesus Christ. And we want to thank you for your love for us because you gave us the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the King. And we do thank you. Not nearly enough, but we do thank you that you appointed of his king, and the representative of his people, Jesus, is our representative. He bore our sins. The king took our sins on himself, and he showed us how to serve. He took our sins on himself, and that lamp of David went out for three days And I suppose Satan thought he was victorious, but the lamp rose from the dead. And now that lamp lightens all of us. And we now are the light of the world. Help us to live up to that. Help us to remember what's important is this eternal kingdom. And what's important is to let people know there is a king and he sits on the throne and he holds all power, but he's gracious to those who seek him, and he says, if you seek me, you will find me. Help us to be ambassadors for Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen.